Before we ju jump into uh, the message, I just want to piggyback off the highlight video. Today starts the first day of 14 days of prayer and fasting, and it's, it's just a special time. I don't know really a great way to put many more words to it than that. I've tried to create the team. We've tried to create lots of spaces and opportunity for you to jump in where it fits with you. One thing I do know, living in America, uh, the New Year's turn has, has always kind of been this big resolution idea, you know, roll up your shoulders. Finally, you're going to make it happen this year. You're going to do this or that, you know, I'll go to the gym, lose weight, look prettier, be nicer to your spouse, you know, whatever it is for you, all these hard things. And I'm going to give up Skittles for the rest of my life. I promise I'm only going to eat biscuits and gravy once a week instead of twice a week, all these things, and most of which probably aren't going to happen and sound very not fun at all. But what, what I do know is uh, 14 days of prayer and fasting together as a church, maybe if you're just a seeker, just come and be a part and, and, and check it out. There's something special that happens. And the good thing about God and his great pleasure is it doesn't require a lot of work for us. We just got to show up. So we're doing some special um, prayer and worship services on the next two Wednesday nights, some family prayer gatherings on Saturday mornings. We have a really cool opportunity that um, if you don't have any prayer partners, you're not used to praying with people regularly, you can hop on our website and, and there's a place for you to just put your name and uh, we'll hook you up with two or three other folks in the church and you guys can connect throughout these next 14 days and share life together and needs together. Man, we have, some awesome, we have an awesome men's prayer group that meets here on Tuesday morning, uh, women's prayer group that meets on Thursday mornings. What else? We have an awesome, man, I mean, so many ways. We, we've literally tried to take all the excuses away <laughs> for you not to participate with us because we know, man, when you do that, something, something changes and, and all of a sudden New Year's resolutions aren't like quite as important because you're just falling in love with Jesus more and more. And those things, they kind of get situated. You can have some Skittles and, and a little more biscuits and gravy. You don't really care about that as much anymore because you're just falling more and more in love with Jesus and, and doing that journey with his church. Um, a, a little brief piece about fasting. I grew up in the church. You'll hear my story a little bit today. I'm a church brat. Fasting was always a thing for me. I was like, man, that sounds like really, really a lot of work. You know, you got to do that to, for Jesus to like you and stuff. So first and foremost, fasting well does not mean you will have an extra star probably in heaven um, on your ID badge. Um, I can't guarantee that, though, because heaven is God's idea, and so maybe you will. But I'm not thinking that's the way it works. And, and so, but what it does mean is... It's just a built-in, it's a really a gift to believers. Fasting has been around since before Jesus was even born, and it's a way for us to create extra space in our life to seek the Lord and ask for deeper desires of Jesus to be in our lives and through our lives and, and for these desires to grow even more rich that we delight and enjoy Him. Typically, that looks like giving up a meal. Um, usually, I know... Um, you know, later in life, there have been some, some weird things. I'm not sure, you know, I'm going to give up Twitter or something. I'm not sure how that works. But generally, um, over history, it's, it's, it's been a meal. And the way, that, the way that's helpful, and it could be two meals, whatever you want to pick. And, and just a, a side note, because I'm pretty hard on myself. If you miss one or two or three of the days or eight of the days, God's not mad at you. You can still do a couple, and you can still ask for him to just be more real in your life during this, these next few days. But what happens is if you give him up, up a meal, just say breakfast. So you just, you're going to say, Lord, I'm, I just want to give up what I usually do, what I usually enjoy, and take these few moments to spend some extra time with you. 
So that means open up your Bible. Maybe there's a Bible app, which is an awesome app on your phone. has tons of awesome devotions, can point you into the scriptures. Maybe that's turning on some worship music. If you don't really know how to do that, just get on an app called Spotify. There's tons of worship lists. Um, I have the best one, so I can send you a link actually to mine um, if you want that. And, and so just spending those few moments, maybe you're a journal, journaler and, and you want to write and just talk to God and ask some deep questions. He'll meet you there, I promise. So we're excited to do the next 14 days with you um, to just seek God together, have him uh, move deeper and deeper in our lives as we cherish his son, Jesus. So as we move into the message, as you can guess it, if you've been with us any time for the past few months or the past year, we are still in the Gospel of Mark, which I think is an awesome blessing. I'm so grateful to Pastor Josh and Brittany that they've, they've um, heard from the Lord for us to dig into Scripture in a very thorough way. Um, that's not a traditional thing for um, a lot of churches, and so it's been a huge blessing to me, as I'm sure it is to a lot of you guys. And so uh, what I thought I would do, it's a new year. If you're like me, I'm getting pretty forgetful up in my old age here, and so um, I, I can say that now because I'm the elder statesman of the staff. Um, I have to use paper. Most everybody you see get up here, they use an iPad. I just don't know what would happen if I got logged out or if the battery went out. We would all be in big trouble. But what I want to do is give a brief review, try to catch us up, because the life of Jesus, we could read just the book of Mark for the rest of our lives daily, and the Holy Spirit would still reveal how incredibly awesome this God-man Jesus is. So here we go. I'm going to try to do a rapid pace here. I'm going to spend a lot, a lot of time. So Mark, the author, man, he is known to come out and just, just blazing guns. He's not wasting no time. So we run right into John the Baptist. He's the crazy guy living out in the desert. He wore camel skin and ate locusts and just drank honey straight from the beehive. He was that guy. He was Jesus' cousin, and he was baptizing people. So the first scene in the book of Mark, we see John is baptizing people for the repentance, forgiveness of sins. Jesus comes walking down the hill, and this is a great moment where John, John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, whose feet I'm not worthy to put sandals on, take sandals off. I'm not worthy of anything of this man. Come down. And Jesus um, gets baptized in the water. He comes out of the water. Mark tells us that God then identifies his son, Jesus, verbally and a, a dove descends. And he says, this is my son, Jesus, for, for everyone standing there. Can you imagine that? You know, just standing here all of a sudden, we hear like God talking. I'm just saying. Uh, then right after that, uh, the Holy Spirit Thrust Jesus out in the wilderness for the temptation. This is a period where we see Satan tempts Jesus to give it all up, throw away the mission for fame and glory and his own pursuit. And Jesus obviously does not give in to that. Thank the Lord for Jesus. Um, and then Jesus starts his ministry. Man, um, there's a long list. I just want to highlight a few. As I was going through this list and looking and putting some of this together, I was just, I remembered the moments that the Holy Spirit specifically spoke to me in some of the messages that we heard this past year. Um, Jesus' healings, this is his demonstration of his power over the physicalness, the physical being. Um, one of the first ones is Peter's mother-in-law. You remember where she's homesick she, and she's um, not doing so hot. Jesus comes and heals her, and then that breaks out everything. The house gets filled. The whole neighbor comes over, and um, he's healing people left and right. Um, the leper the leper was a huge one for me. I always just think, like, me spiritually, we're all kind of lepers. It's, it's a very contagious disease. There was no uh, cure for it back then. It was, it was so bad. In fact, they had to live outside of the city walls. Uh, when they came around, they had to yell, unclean, unclean, so no one would come near and, um, and, and perhaps um, get leprosy from them. Well, Jesus touched the person with leprosy and healed the person with leprosy. The man with the withered hand, 
we see the woman with the issue of blood. Um, uh, man, disciples go out healing um, deaf and blind people. Incredible. Then we see not only Jesus with his authority over the physical, but the, the natural. Jesus stills the storm. I still remember um, Pastor Dustin's sermon on that. The disciples were freaking out. Man, I can't believe he's going to leave us out here to die. Jesus just gets up and says, peace be still. Boom. The storm dissipates. Feeds 5,000 people with just a loaf of bread and a couple of fish. Can you imagine being there for that? Then uh, he just does something, you know, just no big deal. He, uh, the, the guys are back out on the boat, scared to death again, and they look out, and guess who's walking on water? Yeah, you guessed it. Jesus is out there walking on water. Peter tries to do the same thing, bless his heart. He does not do it as well as Jesus. Um, the last one we see over the natural is uh, where Jesus has most recently cursed the fig tree, which stands for the nation of Israel. Um, then Jesus and his power and authority over the spiritual. There's, there's many, many, many here where he um, shuts the mouths of demons, evil spirits, just one word, and they're gone. I got another, man, I'll tell you what, we're going to hop into the text here, but I got, a, I got another humdinger. Remember mine last year was the, uh, the crazy, the crazy demon-possessed guy, the demoniac, he would hide up in the hills, and then when people came by, he would jump out naked and scare people. Remember, that was my crazy one from, but he delivered him from that spirit, and he cast those evil spirits into pigs, and the pigs just jumped over into the water, and there was no more pigs. Jesus has authority over every spiritual authority. Could go on and on. The parables, we could be here all day, which makes Jesus um, so amazing. And so here we are today. Um, it's, it's getting real. Um, this passage is going to be the third of a series of three times where the religious leaders come to challenge Jesus to basically try and make him look bad in front of everybody the goal is with, we can discredit people in front of everybody, I mean, discredit Jesus in front of everybody else. That's all we got to do, and we'll be done with this madness because Jesus, I tell you what, for the religious people was a huge pain. I mean, a ginormous pain. They're used, used to running the show, and now all these people are following Jesus with eyes wide open in wonder, beginning to know that this is different than what we've seen. So today we're going to talk about the third time in a row that these religious leaders come to challenge Jesus. Man, they have not learned their lesson yet. A very unique thing, kind of sad thing for me, is we're really only about two days out from where Jesus dies on the cross, the crucifixion, where he dies on the cross for our sins and sheds his blood for those that would receive him. So we're not very far out from that. So I wanted to share my goal for today. I promise I will try my best to get you to your favorite restaurant to where you don't have to wait extra long. Um, so I just wanted to share the goal in case we do run out of time at the end of time, ahead of time. <laughs> and I actually wrote it out because I can, I can be kind of long-winded and, and um, I just didn't want to miss a piece. And so one of my goals today, it's kind of one of my life goals of which I'm still very imperfect at, but at least I know what I'm shooting for. So thank the Lord. It's to always communicate through my life in such a way that Jesus becomes the supreme treasure of my life and our lives together. This same Jesus that has existed for all of eternity, who took on flesh, we just celebrated through Advent into Christmas. This same virtually indescribable man, God, we've encountered all through our journey in this gospel of Mark. The Holy Spirit, I pray that he reveals more and more that he's our supreme treasure. 
the joy and peace, hope and confidence that builds within us, that as he exposes us to our fickle and feeble hearts, our pride, our selfishness, and rebellious nature, that we can never just seem to completely eradicate on our own. We begin to realize that we have zero shot of drawing near to this holy God, but for Jesus. He steps in and does what we have no hope to do, live a 100% perfect sinless life, all while experiencing despair, temptation, trials, pain, loss, just like you and me. He dies for us on the cross and becomes the complete once for all sacrifice substitution for us. Then he raises from the dead, breaks the chains of death, and draws us near to the Lord. When God, through the Holy Spirit, reveals those implications to us of who Jesus is and what he's done for us, our joy just compounds and compounds. As we realize this is no longer just what we originally thought, a get-out-of-jail-free card so we don't have to worry about some scary punishment a la hell when we die. This is the daily new mercies, ever-increasing abundant joy, freedom to enjoy and delight in the Lord, to taste and see. It's that honey on your lips, that robust satisfaction, that supreme contentment. You see, God actually commands us to chase after those things, chase hard after those things for our own delight. When we discover and behold Christ together, that's what we see in the scriptures. So this, in the end, is like finding that treasure that's hidden away in a field that we find that we give everything away for. This is, in the end, like that priceless pearl that we finally find that our soul's been searching for, and we sell everything we have for that priceless pearl. My personal experience was, was always kind of taking in that God just wanted me to stop doing bad things. I would say a prayer, ask God in my heart, but I could never get right. I would just hope that he'd forgive me my sins and kind of keep messing up. Now, that was indeed kind of an, an ever-awesome, incredible entrance ticket to the game, for sure, to the doorway. But I still wasn't sure how to take in all of God's glories day after day. So that's kind of like getting on the plane to your dream holiday vacation. Where is that for you? Mine is probably Switzerland. So if you're really blessed today, no, I'm just kidding. I'm going to keep going. Um, it, it's like getting a plane ticket to your favorite, dreamiest holiday vacation. And you get there, you check into the hotel, and you just stay in the hotel for the whole time. You see, it wasn't until I was exposed to these things as more of a young adult that an ever-increasing joy, delight, satisfaction, contentment in Jesus was birthed inside of me. You see, the Westminster Catechism says, man's chief end is to glorify God by enjoying God forever. So we glorify God when we just enjoy God. It's not the doing, and that is a delight in and of itself. So my prayer is that the Lord grants us today such demanding taste buds to desire all these things together more and more that it becomes the pursuit of our lives and we point each other to that single aim. All right, you ready? Would you stand with me, please, as we read the word of the Lord together? You guessed it, we're in the Gospel of Mark. If you did guess it, you would have passed that test. Mark, if you turn into your Bibles, it's Mark 12, 
starting in verse 18, where it says, The Sadducees and the resurrection. The Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and questioned him. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, leaving behind but no child, that man should take the wife and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first married a woman and dying, left no offspring. The second also took her, and he died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise. None of the seven left offspring. Last of all, this woman died too. In the resurrection, Jesus, when they rise, whose wife will she be? Since the seven had married her. What a conundrum for Jesus. (laughs) Jesus spoke to them. Isn't this the reason why you're mistaken? You don't know the scriptures or the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, haven't you read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You, my friends, are badly mistaken. Would you pray with me? Lord, we surrender our wills and our hearts to you right now, and we thank you for revealing yourself to us. You gave us your word. I stand back because it's a holy thing, but I do ask as an imperfect vessel, speaking to more imperfect vessels, Holy Spirit, that you would do the work that only you can do. Would you draw us closer to Jesus, and would you reveal to our hearts that he is the most precious thing that we can ever run after, And may all the other things in this world that we're worried about fade away in comparison. Would you do that mighty work in our hearts and lives? In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. All right, I'm gonna have you do something real quick. Uh, Usually um, I'm not the one up here on Sundays. Um, That could be a good or a bad thing. But uh, when I'm in the audience, sometimes, I don't think Pastor Josh does this, but I've been in lots of churches and pastors have have you do different things. And this is one of the things that I cringe. And so now I have the microphone and I guess I can ask you to do something that would make me cringe uh, if I was sitting there. It's not too bad, but the title of today's message is so much better. And I was trying to think of something uh, that would make, make that stick for you. And I'm not a super creative person, I guess. So here we go. I'm going to give it my best shot and then we'll, we'll talk about a little bit what's going on here. So here's what we want to do. There's usually two scenarios um, that we pass through in and out of throughout the course of our lives. One is, is kind of a great one. It's things are going well. Man, you're, you're on the road down the American dream. You know, school's going great. You're in the college you want to be in. You, you know, you have the love of your life. Your spouse is the most beautiful person ever. Job is great. You got the promotions. You got the money. The bank account is looking super swell. All these things could go on and on and on, whatever that is for you. Maybe it's you're just able to, pay, to, to play as much pickleball as you wanted. Um, and, and so what I want to say to that, and we'll be in and out of that season throughout the scope of our life, is that compared to eternity, compared to the glories of heaven and the presence of God, which our souls were created for, gosh, this message is so hard because when we're talking about eternity, 
like the Bible says, um, our eye, our, our, we can't con- even conceive it. So I'm like trying to speak a message together <laughs> and put words to this. So that amazing part of life, the best I can think of is like a, a piece of a, you're eating a cookie maybe and just a tiny crumb falls down to the ground. That glorious part of your life, that's what that amounts to is that little cookie crumble. So I want to say there is, is that Life with God for eternity. And when we're talking about the implications of heaven, here's what I want you to say. Things are going good. They might be great, but even more, more better. I know that's not right verbiage, but sometimes that sticks out. God is beyond that. And the title today, so look at your neighbor and maybe you won't just forget these, how many words? So much better, three words. So look at your neighbor and say, it's good, but with God, it's so much better. Can you do the cringe thing and look at your neighbor and say, so much better. So you did a little bit better than the first service. They were probably a C, maybe a B minus by the time we finished with everything. You're probably starting at a B minus. There's another stage of life that we all go through. Maybe you're in it right now. It's more of a dark, discouraging, depressing life. Maybe you got a sickness, an illness, a close friend or family member's got some things going on. No matter how hard you try, things just keep messing up. Things don't seem to fit together. Every, every new thing you try ends up working the wrong way. Car breaks down. You know, your dog's mad at you. All the things. And you know what? God's promise is, is still true as it was when we just said it in the middle of those seasons of life. See, what we weren't built for this life. This is our temporary home. This is our temporary body. And so you can look at your neighbor now. And if that's you going through that season, you don't have to tell them. But look at somebody and say, if that's you in this season, God's promises still rings true. And it is so much Better. Let's see if we can do better than a B. Can you look at somebody and cringe and say, so much better? You should be proud of yourself. I think this is the advanced class for today. Um, don't tell the first service that we said that. So we're going to go back to the text here and um, jump in. Now, just a quick aside. We got the Sadducees here. We don't see them very often. They're a religious group. They're a smaller group of people in number. But they're, they're, the, they're the rich folks, the aristocrats, um, and they kind of, they kind of um, are the deal. Um, they make the rules. They, um, they make the punishments. Um, they're the quickest to, to work with the Romans who are fierce enemies of the Jews because, as we know, the Romans unfairly taxed the people and, and took advantage of them in many awful ways. So that's the Sadducees. That's who we're talking about. Um, they're, they're the aristocrats. Um, they're the ones that are invited to all the, the, um, the parties, um, and they, and they kind of run the show. So these are the Sadducees. Um, a couple other things to know is they're, they're different than the Pharisees. You'll see um, in, in the Bible that Pharisees are mentioned a lot. Man, they're chasing Jesus down. They're at all the events primarily, and Sadducees, not so much. This, we only see them um, this time and maybe another time. The Pharisees, um, they believe um, the Old Testament, they even wrote down a series of hundreds of laws, like weird things that everybody had to follow. I mean, they were just over the top. Um, whereas the Sadducees, they only believed the first five books of the Bible. That's called the Torah or the Pentateuch. And so we know that Moses was the author of the first five books of the Bible. And that's why we see in this, we're talking about Moses. They said, Moses commanded us to do this. And so um, and then the other important note for the Sadducees, um, which makes this passage so completely ironic, is that they do not believe in life after death. Um, 
So you can see how it's a ridiculous question and very bad faith that they were proposed to Jesus in front of people to ask them about a question about life after death when they themselves do not believe in life after death. So they tell Jesus, and there is an old Moses rule that says, you know, when a wife dies and, <clears throat> excuse me, and um, they haven't had any children or a son, um, the rule was that the man's brother would marry the wife and then hopefully have a son, and, and that son would be um, the inheritance of the father that passed away would be passed along. Um, and it was important then, um, it's different now in Jesus' time, but to create family inheritances and, and so the family could keep the land that they had for their family and those types of things. Um, but again, the Sadducees didn't really care about that. They were just trying to um, make Jesus look bad in front of people. And so it goes on to be even more ridiculous because they asked this question seven times. I mean, you would think by the third or fourth time, there would be no fifth husband to try this wife. They're all dying like this, you know? Um, and, and so, but nonetheless, they ask, and then um, Jesus says, is this, uh, is this really what you're asking here? Um, and he goes on to say, um, you don't understand this whole thing at all. First, he tells them that they don't know the scriptures, and so that is a blast. A direct assault on the Sadducees, they pride themselves in being the, the bearers of God's truth. Moses, the first five books. I'm going to a quick rabbit trail in regards to knowing Scripture. Jesus told them, um, you ask this question, but you don't know the Scriptures. And, and it's important for us as a church, as you would know, um, that we want to point us together as a church to always be in the Scriptures personally and together on our journey. As a matter of fact, we have Wednesday night, women's Bible study, men's Bible study. We're walking through verse by verse in the Bible every week. And, and here's one reason I'm really extra passionate about this, because for folks that don't know their scripture, they can be easily led to believe things that are not true of God. And it, it would make me furious at times when I've seen this. You know, so times when You've seen people that don't in the scriptures and maybe they, they ask the Lord in their heart because there was this prayer they heard and then they're told, you know, if you just have enough faith, here's, here's what it means to be a Christian. You'll, you'll, never, you'll never be sick. If you just have a little faith, you'll never get a disease. But of course, we all know we're all human. That's gonna happen eventually to all of us. We die. Uh, or, or maybe, you know, the, the thing where you become a Christian and, and that's the promise where you're finally going to become wealthy. As a matter of fact, you listen to some folks and I think they'll tell you they're going to get your, you're going to get your own private jet. Um, you know, you name it. And, and again, if we know the scriptures, we know that that's not necessarily the promise. And so here's kind of my beef with that is that if you play that out, now you got people that decide to trust in Jesus when they do get sick. Oh, man, is it because I don't have enough faith? When the bank account's not where I want it to be, oh, man, God told me I was going to be, be this millionaire, you know? And so we have a whole group of people now that are completely disillusioned, jaded, and, and throw God out the window because they have not been shown the scriptures, the word of the Lord. And we have the same problem now, right, with the Sadducees. Jesus says, you don't know the word. 
So the era we're looking at right now is the first part is the era of thinking of heaven in terms of earth and thinking of eternity in terms of time. We just can't do that with heaven. Heaven is not simply going to be a continuation of an extension of this world. It's not like, um, you know, I think sometimes you hear people joke or sometimes, you know, make a funny and, oh, you know, I know in the South, football's an idol. So maybe there'll be unending college football games and barbecues and brisket and it's going to be even glorious or maybe traveling's your thing. And like, oh, it's going to be like kind of heaven's probably going to be like the greatest vacation ever or, or whatever that is for you, fill in the blank. That's just not the case. And that's a good thing. See, in heaven, there's going to be greater relationships which will far transcend our physical relationships of time. There's, it, it's, 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 this is the really hard part to put into words, but um, they're talking about marriage too. Marriage is kind of the, the biggest relationship that we think of on earth, but you're still, we're still broken, imperfect people, selfish. We lie, we, 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 we get angry, we get frustrated. I want a little more. I get 55%, you get 45%. Don't look at me like I'm the only one. You know? and, and so all these things, and relationships are always tainted, even the best ones. In heaven, that's not the case. We know that everything will be completely pure. And so it's a whole different uh, we can't conceive it. We try our best. And um, one of my favorite things about our marriage is Kayla is passionate about heaven. Um, a lot of times I thank God. When we sing these songs like this, I'm like, Lord, take me to heaven now. Please, Lord. I just want to be in the throne room. And, and so just to stir up thoughts and encourage each other with that. But I think when we think of heaven in our own terms, uh, it's, we start to have a lack of zeal for that, you know, like, can only do too much football. We can only do too much like fancy vacations. Our heart was built for more than that, but we've done it all throughout human history. I have some examples. Um, the Indians, they were by nature hunters. They conceived of a heaven, which was a happy hunting ground. So for you hunters, right? There's another one. Um, the Vikings, who were by nature warriors, thought of their heaven, Valhalla, where they would fight all day where at night the dead would be raised and the wounded would be made whole again, and they would spend the evening banquets drinking wine made from the skulls of their conquered foes. Man, that does not sound like my kind of heaven. Um, the Muslims were, were desert people living in circumstances where luxury was a complete unknown. So they conceived of a heaven as a place where men would live a life replete with all the women that they wanted, every sensual and bodily pleasure known to man, and that one, um, I'm not sure where the women fit in with heaven, but um, the men sure conceived an idea that they thought they would, uh, they would like. The Jews hated the sea, and they thought of heaven as a place where there would be no more sea. Here's this. I thought of a quote from C.S. Lewis. It's not that our desires are necessarily inherently wrong. Um, some things aren't bad and those types of things, but that our desires are actually too weak. So Lewis says it like this, no, it's not your desires that are, are the problem, it's the weakness of your desires that are the problem. You are like a child fooling about in mud slums with your mud pies because you just can't imagine what a holiday at sea is like. So in other words, our desires for great things that God is offering, they're just way too small. Our problem is not 
too big of desires, but small desires for big things. So let's address the marriage thing. Um, I don't want to just pass over that. I know that, uh, like, these are the questions. I have kids, and so they want to know if our dog will eventually be in heaven. And I think um, of heaven for me, and if there's a house next to mine. Have you ever had a neighbor with a, with a dog that barks a lot, and they leave them outside all day long, and they're just yapping all day long? Um, that would not be the heaven that I dream of. Um, but it's possible. We really don't know. But Jesus is clear. Marriage in heaven. This is where the rubber meets the road. So Jesus says, what does he say here? They neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Here's another funny side note. The Sadducees, they didn't believe in an afterlife. So of course they didn't believe in angels. So here's like another extra jab. <laughs> He's like, uh, there's no marriage. There is an afterlife. And in a way, they're going to be kind of like angels that you don't believe in either. Marriage was created um, way before humans thought of it. Originally, when God created Adam, he created Eve because he just knew he, Adam should not be alone. That's a beautiful part of marriage. Um, we also see in marriage where two become one, fruitful and multiply, half families populate the earth, um, that type of thing. So that's the practical part. But then Paul says in Ephesians in the New Testament, if you fast forward, um, kind of even a more beautiful idea of marriage, the picture of marriage as a symbol of Christ and the church. And so he, he goes on to talk about how the bride or um, the wife, the spouse in this scenario, is to submit to her husband like the church, but in a beautiful way to where she's completely fulfilled as the church is when the church submits to the head who is Jesus. And then the husband, which is even scarier, it says the husband should be unto their wives as though Christ is to the church where he sacrificed his life for the church. And so husbands, you sacrifice your life for your wife and she is built up and then Jesus becomes more beautiful to her. So that's marriage. Marriage is not going to be in heaven, at least as we know it. Um, I am so sorry, but the, you know, the vows are um, till death do us part. Um, if eternity was built into the vow, some people might be scared away big time. So um, just take it up with Jesus. Here's what I know. Hear me, church. None of us are going to get to heaven and be like, man, God, you really missed the boat on this one. Not at all. It's going to blow our minds. Here's what we do know about heaven. Firstly, 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 2.9, no eye has seen, nor no ear has heard, and no mind can conceive of or imagine what God has prepared for those of us who love him. That is the so much better. Here's some texts that tell us a little bit about, if your curiosity is just flowing this morning, what will our bodies be like? They will be recognizable. They will be like Christ's body, glorified bodies. They will not be limited by space. They will be eternal. They will be glorious. They won't have any pain. Can I get an amen there, saints? They will not die. They will not hunger or thirst. They will not sin. That's the one piece right there. An eternity where there is no sin. We just don't know how affected we are by, by darkness sometimes. Here's what heaven will be like. Heaven is being prepared by Christ Jesus himself 
for us. Heaven is only for those who have trusted Jesus as their Savior. Heaven is described as a glorious city. Heaven will shine and be lighted by God's glory. There will be no night or darkness in heaven. Heaven's gates will never be shut. Heaven has the water of life for everlasting life. Heaven has the tree of life for abundant life. Heaven has the throne of God, if you can imagine, right at its center. Heaven is a place of holiness. Heaven is altogether beautiful. Heaven is a place of perfect unity. It's a place of perfection. Heaven is joyful. It's a place for all eternity. There is no night. And I like this last one. It's unique. Uh, Heaven, it says, is filled with singing. Something about when we sing together, that's such a minute example probably. You know, if you've been to concerts and stuff, there feels almost like a rapture in the air, that one song, everybody's singing it together, and the singer backs off the mic, and you hear everybody singing, you're like, you just, your heart almost, almost expands, like how much more glorious can something be? And that, again, that experience that we've all had probably in some way is just like another crumble from the bite of cookie compared to being around the Lord's throne delighting in that, being in perfect relationship of perfect unity. Gosh, I could go on all day. I got the sermon where we talk about heaven. I don't know if that was a good idea, um, but hopefully you're loving that with me. All right, we move to the second part of the answer. So Jesus answers the nature of heaven, and that's not the biggest deal. Like, again, no one's going to get to heaven and be, like, upset about what's going to happen and heaven is going to be like. I can promise you that with 100% certainty. The second part of the answer is actually the fact of the resurrection. Remember, Sadducees don't even believe in the resurrection. But Jesus said, And as for the dead being raised, haven't you read in the book of Moses in the passage about the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So friends, again, my Sadducees, you are sadly mistaken. What Jesus does here, um, there's more to be excited about, but there's just that peace within me that's, that's just like right behind Jesus, like, yeah, Jesus, you get them. Make them, you know, those guys are idiots, you know, and because Jesus like just takes them to the woodshed. Remember, like I said, they only believe the first five books, Moses wrote those books, and there's nothing else. There's no afterlife. There's no nothing. So Jesus says, all right, gentlemen. Basically, he doesn't say it like this. This is my my version, so so forgive me here. But gentlemen, um, remind me again, the book of Exodus. Yeah, Jesus, that's that's the first five books. Okay, remind me, um, Moses, yeah, he, he wrote the first five books. How did God reveal himself to Moses? Um, of course, Jesus, that was the burning bush. And who did God tell Moses that he was? I am the living God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you imagine, I almost imagine as he's saying this, the Sadducees' eyes are getting like bigger and bigger and bigger, like, oh, oh. Because what he's saying there is if the Sadducees believed there was a living God, obviously, No one believes they serve a dead God. So that's not the question. But Jesus says, if he's a living God, he's not a living God of just dead people because we all die. So somewhere 
Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are our forefathers. That's a great family reunion in heaven that I want to be a part of. God is a living God of a living people. Case closed, door shut. See you next time, Sadducees. Actually, Luke says that some of the religious leaders that were there were so surprised at how good Jesus' response was that they dared not ask him any more of those entrapment questions. Finally. But here's what I want to move to and, and focus on um, as, as kind of the last part of the message here, the, the so much better. And it's the implications of the resurrection, life after death, and the fear of death. The book of Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15 tell us this. Now since the children have flesh and blood in common, we have flesh and blood, Jesus also took on flesh and blood so that through his death, he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is, the devil, and then free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. That describes perfectly the fear of death. Most every human on the planet is most scared of death. The scariest thing of all probably is for us to think about and look death in the face someday. Life as you know it, completely gone in just the blink of an eye. And ultimately, we all know, I think we live in a way, I even live in a way sometimes when I'm not careful that I'm not the worst person out there. My neighbor, man, he's crazy. He's way worse than me. Or this crazy guy I work with in the cubicle across the office, that dude, man, he is a sinner. You know, and so we live in that way where like it doesn't, it's not gonna affect us. But when we think about death, things change because it's personal. What we know is that the most wonderful, kind human to ever live, whoever that might be, when they die and experience life after death and they meet with God, they don't, we don't have a list of selflessness that is longer than our list of selfishness to present. Our list of selfishness, yours, mine, everyone who's ever lived, their list of selfishness is way longer than the list of selflessness. That's why we scarcely talk about death. The fact is physical death should be the most abhorrent, wicky, scared thing imaginable for those who don't trust in Jesus as their savior. Imagine eternity where there's no such thing as time. It goes on and on and never stops without the presence of the Lord. Here's what that means. It's an eternity, which means all love, joy, peace, goodness, honesty, truth, goodwill, security, safety, order, protection, and even light itself are vanquished from your presence forever. All those things are attributes of God, and when we're not in his presence or his presence is not given to us, those things are gone. It makes it the scariest, it makes the scariest and darkest times here on earth completely pale in comparison. But now, for the person who has completely put their trust in Jesus as their savior, as their supreme goal and treasure, like we've sung about earlier, we have been freed from that scare of physical death. In fact, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection completely transformed the thought 
a physical death from a slavery, a, a fear, but actually something to behold and a hope that that's our ultimate encouragement, church. So if you are trusting Jesus, here's what Paul says in uh, Philippians 1, 20, verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. I think Paul goes on to say what he's saying here is that's my eager expectation. I am confident that Christ will be glorified when I die. And my basis for that expectation that Christ will be glorified when I die is because dying will actually be experienced to me as a gain and not a loss. Namely, as I consider Christ to be more satisfying to me than everything else life has to offer, everything else I'm leaving behind when I die. And that is how Jesus is glorified supremely. When I see him as more satisfying than anything else this life can offer, he is glorified and magnified. Church, for believers, death is no more to be feared. It's our homecoming and the ultimate realization of our longings. That's the so much better. So as I close, Generally, we see in the book of Mark, we just know in human existence, now when it comes to Jesus, there's always two different types of people. For, for one type of person, when Jesus comes on the scene, he becomes the answer. It's like they are, there was some desperate cry in their heart that they needed a rescue. And when Jesus came on the scene, there was like this whew, I was at the end of my rope. Jesus, thank God you showed up. He's that hope, that joy, that delight, that contentment, that satisfaction. For the other type of person, the Sadducees, you see, Jesus was a major inconvenience for what they wanted to do in life. Remember, they didn't believe in life after death. So for for anyone who doesn't believe in life after death in any way, we're talking about a rule of life is, okay, now we drink, love, live, be merry, do whatever we want, because tomorrow does not matter. And sadly, today, in America, and many churches across our country, pews are filled with people who say they're Christians, but they live life like Sadducees. I'm going to drink today, be merry, and live life as if there really isn't a tomorrow. And that's not a guilt thing. You've heard me talk the past 30 minutes. For me to know that is a sad thing because that's a missing out thing. But the only, only the Holy Spirit can bring someone to that conclusion, to, to realize, yeah, I probably... If I'm being honest with myself today, this morning, I, I, I see myself as that Sadducee. It takes honesty. It, it takes probably a pausing to, de to, to think deeply, a willingness to identify yourself and say, yeah, Brandon, you're right. That's totally me. You got me pinned this morning. It's super hard for all of us. In America, the news preaches at us. Culture preaches at us. It's all about us, world-centered revolving around us, pursue the American dream at all costs. And after all, you and you and you and you and you and you and you, you deserve it. 
We hear at times, even from people in our lives with the best intentions, friends, families, parents, loved ones, the same thing. Go get it. You deserve it. Satan has tried to create zombies out of a people. We're now a people that get out of bed to try and do something to impress people we don't know many times on social media that we have to be the best parent or look the best. This is a tease, but have the coolest Stanley Cup. All these things, but they get in the way. See, we've been convinced that the human pinnacle is doing life on our own terms, realizing the American dream and being in control ourselves, just like the Sadducees. More power, more money, more status, but history is completely clear. When any man or woman is in charge of things, things get ruined very fast. We are not God and we are not Jesus, and that is what makes the gospel such great news. And my prayer is that the Holy, Holy Spirit would soften each and everyone's heart to take that in and be able to say, man, I can't do it. You're right. I mess up everything at the end of the day. I get some things right, but then I move on to the next thing and then it breaks. That's what makes the gospel good news. Go back to C.S. Lewis's quote. It's not the desires that are the problem. It's the weakness of our desires that are the problem. We're like a child fooling around in mud slums, creating mud pies because we just can't fathom. We can't imagine what a holiday at sea, life with God is like, that's so much better. In other words, our desires for the great things that God is offering is so much better. Those desires for those things are way too small. Our problem is not big desires, but small desires for big things. 1 Corinthians 2.9 tells us, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind can conceive or imagine what God has prepared for all of us who love him and trust Jesus as our Savior. So if the ultimate experience of our joy is found actually enjoying who God is, it would, it would make God selfish if he didn't command us to pursue that joy in him. There's one problem with that is that we cannot attain that joy and our own effort. Well, he solved that problem too, and his name is Jesus. The Bible tells us that Jesus came, took on flesh, that's why we celebrate Christmas, lived the perfect life that we couldn't live, so that he died on the cross and shed his blood, so that he rose from the grave and broke the slavery of death and the chains, so that we would experience the so much better and be drawn to Jesus. I'm gonna close with this. This is the center of the gospel. This is what Jesus' life and death are all about, that God has done astonishing and costly things to draw us near to himself. He has sent his son to suffer and to die so that through him we might delight in his presence and draw near. Everything he has done in the great plan of salvation is so that we might draw near to him. And that nearness is for our joy and for his glory. And that's what he wants for all of us. Would you bow your heads with me this morning and close your eyes? As we get ready to close, man, I don't wanna rush. Can we just take 30 seconds? And in your own words, maybe in your own heart or thoughts, 
give, give a second to ponder how the Lord is speaking to you as he is here with us this morning through his word. What is he saying to you? What do these words mean to you today? Maybe that you just want to tell the Lord that you long to desire for him in these greater, so much better ways. Man, what a beautiful prayer. I prayed a lot. God, would you, would you do that inside of my heart? His presence is here. He is the living God. He does want you to draw near to him. For all of us to experience that unspeakable joy and delight that is so much better, God, would you do that? And with every eye closed and, and head still bowed, if you're here and you're like, Brandon, I came in, I had no idea about all this stuff. But Jesus in that way is worth giving up everything. That sounds incredible. That's amazing. Well, this morning is your morning. That is the Holy Spirit speaking to your heart, saying, child, it is time. It is time, child. I love you. I gave you my son. Would you receive me? If that's you in this room, that word is, is for you and you would receive Jesus this morning in this way. I just want to pray for you. Nobody's looking around. If you would slip your hand up briefly so I can see it so I can know to pray for you. I'm just going to give a few more seconds. Today is your day. Don't wait for tomorrow, for tomorrow is never promised to any of us. Anyone else in this room, you would slip up your hand in bold confidence and say, yes, it's my time. This so much better, this Jesus is me. Church, would you repeat this, everyone in the room? whether you wait, raise your hand or not, repeat this prayer after me and pray together. God, I want to know you as the great treasure and supreme joy of my life. Forgive me for my sins, my pride, and my selfishness. Thank you for dying on the cross as the sacrifice to draw me near. Be my Lord and King and Savior all my days. And teach me to delight in you. Amen. Church, would you stand and celebrate along with those who might have said that prayer from their heart for the very first time?